At one time in church history, it was absolutely unthinkable to think of churches dividing or splitting up. This was a long time ago. There was an event that happened just after 1000 AD where the Eastern Orthodox and the Western Catholic Church split from one another. And it's a divide that remains to this day. And it was called the Great Divorce or the Great Schism in the Church. Because there had never been a time where the church was so divided, where we're not going to fellowship with you anymore. Then you come along to the Protestant Reformation, and that, in the same way, was just as radical. That these people were not staying in the Catholic Church. They were being kicked out, but they were continuing, and they were beginning Protestant, as they're now called, churches. But then all the Protestant leaders, kind of their own people, kind of made their own groups. And then those groups split off into more. And, you know, some of that was okay. But it is still a tragedy to consider that the church has been divided. But when you consider those things, at least they were for big, noble reasons, weren't they? Even if you think it shouldn't have happened. Even if you think I disagree with his or her position. It's like, well, the things they were disputing about and dividing over, at least they were related to the gospel. Fast forward to now and here. And one of my favorite things to do is to look up what I like to call boutique churches. These are churches that only and intentionally focus on a very narrow sliver of people and who they're trying to reach. I have seen over the years there are churches for entrepreneurs. And every Bible study is aimed at making you a better entrepreneur. There are churches for musicians where everything is related to uh, you being a better musician. And uh, I'm sure there's an awful lot of networking that goes on as well. I'm sure the worship team is incredible, but still. I know that there are churches that are in places like Hollywood and New York that are almost exclusively for celebrities. I don't know if you like get less famous, they have to boot you out of the church, but they're still out there. And less formal, you have churches that are mostly for white people and churches that are mostly for black people. Now, this isn't usually stated outright. It used to be, and that was a terrible thing, and it's good we don't do it anymore. But sometimes somebody walks in is a little different, and everyone just kind of goes, Ugh. Okay, they'll figure it out eventually. You know, we have churches for different languages, and sometimes that's necessary, but sometimes they will remain separate from the rest of the church in order to maintain their heritage, as it said. We have churches that are only out there to reach families, churches that are only out there to reach singles, churches that are only for people who have never been to church before. I don't know how you're allowed to come two weeks in a row, but they're out there. There are churches that are only for people that have been churched and hurt. There are traditional churches. There are contemporary churches. There are churches for various tax brackets. There's all kinds of different boutique churches now, like we have boutique coffee shops. Now, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen tells us that not all division is a bad thing. That's good to remember. Sometimes they're like, no, we're not going to worship with you because you keep on trying to get us to read 3 Corinthians or something like that. Okay, That's a good reason to divide. But this kind of fracturing and intentional subdivision of the church is not a good thing. Instead, as we have been seeing through Romans 14, the church is to be a place of welcome and harmony and constant conflict resolution. That's what the church is for. Not to just to split up into a million pieces, but to be constantly working to unify, not even just within the church, but between churches. That's the goal of the church. 
And as we today come to the end of the application section of Romans, Paul is going to remind us that the shared hope of salvation that we have in common in the church ought to be enough to keep us united, to keep us loving each other, to keep us welcoming each other. And this is still being said in the context of what we read in chapter 14 over matters of opinion, issues that have nothing to do with the gospel. And Paul is going to remind us that it is up to us to maintain that. So let's read the first three verses of Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is still very much tied to the previous chapter. You see he's still using terms like strong and weak. And he's also calling back in a way to Romans chapter 13 verse 8 when he said, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. And really since then it's been an unpacking of that principle. And so using a similar word choice here, saying we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Oh, everyone to whom something is owed. And if you are strong, you owe something to the weak. Now let's remember what we're talking about here. Paul is primarily referring to matters of the Jewish food laws, the holy days, things like that. But this is referring in broader context to any matter of behavior or opinion that is not directly related to righteousness or to sound doctrine. Things like the length of your hair. Things like the movies that you watch, things like the foods that you eat or the drink that you drink, things that have no bearing on the things of the spirit. There are differences of opinion. And what Paul explained and what we looked at last time is that we have so much liberty in Christ Jesus. Not everybody can accept it. Whether that's because they are not informed according to the scriptures, whether that is because they grew up a certain way and they're just having a hard time shaking it. There are a lot of people whom Paul calls weak meaning their conscience is weak, who, if they were to engage in some of these disputable matters, it would for them be a stumbling block. It would cause them to sin and even fall away from the Lord. Those who are strong are those who recognize that I am free in Christ Jesus and the whole world has been opened up to me as long as I am not committing a sin. And that's obvious, I think. And he says here that those who are strong have a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak. That word for bear with can in some contexts mean put up with, right? He'll say bear with one another in love. But right here, he's more saying that we are to bear up, to help the weak in their failing. Because it is a failing. It is a shortcoming of faith to believe that something like wine or meat can affect your soul. That's, that's weak faith. But he says, you who are strong do not have a responsibility to go around slapping them upside the head and trying to get them to get it. It is your job to do everything that is necessary to carry them forward along that narrow road. And the point he was making in the last chapter is sometimes it's good just to give things up or at the very least to keep them to yourself. 
And he's continuing this line of thought here. He says, instead, we are not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor. You can hear the call back to Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Both strong and, I would say, those of you who are weak, too. You have a responsibility to love and bear with and please the one who is strong. Because what can happen, and this happens a lot, and I think this is this is a very unfortunate thing in a lot of churches, is that somebody is not weak in the flesh or in their conscience. What they are is just opinionated. And they're not in any danger of stumbling over something. They just don't like it. And so they, well, I'm weak, so you have to please me. Oh, no, 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 brothers and sisters. No. If you are not in any danger of stumbling over something, then you are a strong conscience person. And if you then choose not to do something, that is entirely up to you. But it is also entirely up to that other person to make the same decision. We're all making decisions for edification, which means to build something up, right? To edify is to make an edifice out of something, to build it. The church is not for the individual's pleasure and preference. I hope we know that. That church is not about finding the place that most fits me. That just kind of sounds crass when you say it out loud like that, doesn't it? Let's see what all these churches have to offer me. Let's see if they have the music that I like. Let's see if everybody is more like me and is a kind of ministry that I want to get involved with. And we don't say things like that sometimes with any harm in mind. But it's good to remember, it's really not about you or me, is it? It's about making disciples. The church is, is in, you know, to use another illustration the Bible uses, is an army. Right? We're, we're enlisting in an army to accomplish a mission. You don't show up to boot camp with a bunch of list of demands. You know, you show up and say, oh, well, I've heard that you're a little more relaxed on the uniforms. Is that, is that true? I'm going to try it out for a week or two, see if we like it. And I might try it. Like, no, when you're enlisting in boot camp, like, you, you're going to get yelled at until you do what we are doing, right? It all exists to bring I into the we. Now, in the church, we're not that harsh with each other. We're never to be harsh with each other. But it's the same idea, that I is to be subsumed into the we of what the church is doing. And what are we doing? Well, the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, Jesus said, go out into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Go out and do for other people, Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, go out and do to other people what I have just done to you, which is to make you a disciple of me. That's the mission. And now once somebody has become a disciple, there is a constant process, which we call discipleship. Of you believe you have become a disciple and now you are to grow as a disciple. And it is everybody in this room's responsibility. Look around. Like, honestly, do this. Look around at each other. Smile. It's okay. See, Tyler's making us look at each other again. You know, whatever. Uh, you have a responsibility for that person's spiritual well-being. Because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are to lift one another up. You are to do everything you can to make sure you are not getting in the way of that person's growth. But on the contrary, to do whatever you can to help them grow. And why is that so certain? Why can I say that so strongly? Because he says we are following the example of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus do anything for his own pleasure? 
No, the only thing Jesus was doing was seeking the joy set before him on the other side of the cross. Jesus is the one that emptied himself of his divine privileges and his glory with the Father so that he could be born in a manger and live as a man in this world. And not even as like a glorious, rich, powerful man. As a nobody that didn't have anywhere to lay his head and everybody wanted to get him killed. That's where Jesus lived. He quotes there in in verse 3, if you're taking notes, he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 7. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus bore our reproach, our insults, the attacks coming after us to the point of his own death. Now, did the people like that Jesus did this? Now, if you were one of those that he loved, you did. But if you were one of those religious people that were looking for Jesus to be kind of the symbol of everything that you thought, you didn't much care for Jesus doing this. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is right after he saved and called Levi, the tax collector. This is a guy that worked for Rome. Imagine if China marched in and took over the United States. And then... Your neighbor down the street started working for them to collect their taxes and tribute. And not only that, they were taking more than they needed, and they were getting rich off of the back of you for a foreign occupying power. I can see in some of your eyes, you already don't like this imaginary person that I'm describing. That's who Levi was. And Jesus, with all of his, you know, fishermen, downtrodden Hebrew people maintaining the faith, we're going to get these Romans out of here. He comes up and says, would you like to be one of my disciples? Yes, I would. And what did Jesus do? He went to dinner at Levi's house. And as he reclined at table in his house, Levi invited all of his scummy friends Many tax collectors and sinners. That's just kind of a catch-all category that in many cases at least included prostitutes, according to the Gospels. So Jesus goes to Levi's house. All these other shady business guys that are sold out their country are there. They've brought their escorts with them. They've got their, their gangsters that are helping them out and beating people up and breaking legs for them. We're reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many such people who followed him. If you were going to follow Jesus, you're going to be surrounded by a lot of people that made you very uncomfortable. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now you can hear the accusation in that, right? They're not trying to find out what is this new thing that God is doing. How dare he eat with tax collectors and sinners? How dare he do that? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What do you think the conversation was like around the campfire when you were following Jesus? You know, they weren't, you know, talking about their you know, their 401k and how things were working out and the kids are in school now. It was a rough, motley crew. And if you've ever been around new believers, it's messy. Have you not learned that? You ever tried to pray with a new believer? Anybody ever been in a prayer meeting with a new believer who cursed in their prayer before? Isn't that hilarious when that happens? Because you can hear the passion in their voice, but they don't know any other way to talk. And it's like, you know what? We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. At least they're praying right now. 
Or you, you know, I remember when I was a youth pastor, somebody would get saved and it was somebody that the kids kind of knew, watch out for her, watch out for him. We know what they're like. That dude's always got a joint in his back pocket all the time. That girl has dated just about every guy in the 11th grade and now she's at our church. It's like, yeah, I know. And they don't quite know how to dress or talk or act. Yeah, I know. And they keep on talking about this movie they watch that we're not allowed to watch. Yeah, I know. But they're here. Isn't it great? It's a motley crew that followed Jesus. And all the religious people weren't quite so sure about this. But Jesus was. So what we've learned in the last few weeks is to follow the example of Jesus that in a matter that does not relate to sound doctrine, we are to be, here's my favorite phrase of the day, maximally flexible maximally flexible, maximally flexible. How flexible do you need to be when somebody comes into the church and isn't quite living culturally like Christians do as flexible as possible, like Cirque du Soleil level flexible Christian? Because as Pastor Chuck always said, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. We prioritize maturity in ourselves and in each other. So when somebody comes in, if it has nothing to do with the gospel, who cares? We welcome each other. Let me say that again. If it has nothing to do with the gospel, who cares? That includes a wide range of things that we all probably have very strong opinions about. But when we walk through those doors here in the church, they don't matter anymore. Because we are focused only on the most important thing. Everything we do is to please each other, not for our own comfort. I hope we all get one day really uncomfortable when we walk into church here. Because all of a sudden it's like, these don't look like my people. These look like some scary people. These look like the kind of people that if I was in the store, I'd go down the other aisle and I'd get rice on my next lap in the grocery store. Because those are the people that need Jesus, right? Like we're so great anyway. We all needed Jesus just as much as they did. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That verse on its own is worth you circling and memorizing because it, it is very important to our theology of the Bible. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul first, verse 4. I don't want to skip over this, but I, I do want to study it in context and in proportion. So he makes a statement about the nature of the Old Testament scriptures kind of in passing. Paul did this a lot. He would drop these doctrinal bombs and then keep moving. But he just quoted Psalm 69 in verse 3. And then in verse 4 it says, For whatever was written in former days, meaning the Old Testament, was written for our, meaning the church's, instruction. This is what we believe as evangelical Christians. That the Old Testament is entirely fully endorsed and illuminated by the New Testament. How much of the Old Testament are we to believe? All of it. Now, is there some progressive revelation? Do you need to read to the end of the story to know how we are to handle some of it? Yes. But the Old Testament is not less inspired than the New Testament. Whenever the New Testament talks about the Scriptures, there was no New Testament yet. They're talking about the OT. John 5, 39, Jesus said, The Scriptures are they which testify of me. Which Scriptures? 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, Psalms, Malachi, Ecclesiastes, all of that. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says, From the time you were a kid, you have known the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. What scriptures are able to make me wise for salvation? Judges, Joshua, Nehemiah, Ruth, Ezra, Job, Song of Solomon, Habakkuk. And in fact, 1 Peter 1 verse 12, Peter said that the Old Testament prophets didn't even know the things they were writing when they were going to apply. He says, but they learned that they were writing for our sake, which means that God, according to your Bible, deliberately inspired the Old Testament prophets to write things that did not apply to them yet so that when he brought his church together, they could benefit from them. How cool is that? And how important is that for when you're doing theology and when you're trying to do biblical exegesis? And he says, the purpose of the scriptures written for our benefit were to teach us to endure to realize the, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. He's saying all of this was building to your days. So keep going, right? Don't give up. Keep at it. And as Paul starts to wrap up in verse 5, he's, he's going to have several of these in the last couple chapters. He's giving these blessings, these benedictions. May the God of endurance and encouragement. You see, those are the same two things that the scriptures give us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you. And the blessing there is that God will work out harmony in the church. What is harmony? Harmony is two different notes that when you play them together, they sound really nice. This is why choirs sound so great. You know, it's one thing when you're at the football game and everybody's chanting the same thing at the same time, but then when you bring out the choir and they're all singing different notes and they're spread out four or five different ways, that's harmony. So in the same way, our different opinions about secondary matters harmonize with one another because the most important thing is Jesus. We're singing in the key of Jesus. That's the most important thing. And having learned this instruction, we already looked at this in the last chapter. He tells us to welcome one another. Welcome one another. By the way, you all do an excellent job about that. I'm constantly being told how welcoming and how kind you all are. Keep it up. Don't stop. If you don't recognize somebody, that's the first person you need to talk to. He reminds us why we welcome each other. And he says, because Christ has welcomed you. The story that that Old Testament was bringing us to, being fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and the welcome that you received when you were at your lowest point, that's the welcome you are to offer to other people. Now, why did Jesus welcome us? It was all because of his love, right? So if you're going to be like Jesus, you've got to have Love for other people. Not just for Christians. Not just for your family. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who abuse you, mistreat you. Love extends beyond just the people we love. Because Jesus said, of course, everybody loves the people that love them. Even the pagans do that. But John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. What kind of love, Jesus? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus, at the Last Supper, said, I want the defining mark of my people to be love. To be love for each other. Do you notice? And not even righteousness. Not even justice. 
Not even doctrine. All things that are maximally important. But Jesus says, if I could pick one thing for people to know you by, it would be love. Meditate on that, Christian. That in the last few moments Jesus had of his disciples, he did not choose to expound to them a bunch of mysterious doctrine. He told them to love each other. He got down and he washed their feet. The God of the universe on his knees, washing their feet. And he said, go and do likewise. How can we claim to have benefited from God's love and then fail to welcome each other? How can we sing, you give beauty for ashes, and then some ashes walk through the door and you say, nope, don't say anything, maybe she'll go away. Oh, I work with her, I know what she's like. Oh, I went to high school with that guy, not him, anybody but him. There's a million churches in this town and he chooses to walk through this door. Just don't say anything, maybe he'll go away. <laughs> no way. Is that what Jesus did for you? When the father saw you coming home, prodigal son, he ran to you and he threw his arms around you and he put his ring on your finger and said, let's kill the fatted calf because my son has come home. And we celebrate and we sing about it as we should. But that should then trickle over to where we show the same love to other people. Especially in the church when the only thing that divides us are things that have nothing to do with Jesus. I just can't worship with them. You know what kind of music they listen to? What? What? Jesus welcomed you when you were yet a sinner. He bled out on a cross for you. Yes, and I thank him every day for it. All right then. But you know what John said? John said, how can you love God whom you've never seen and not love the brother you do see? He says, you're a liar if that's what you think. You're a liar. You don't really love anybody. You just want to get out of hell free card. And that's not the same thing. That's why it's so laughable to me and so incongruous when we divide up on purpose into these weird little churches. Well, this church is only for entrepreneurs. Can I come? Well, you can, but none of this is going to mean anything to you. I don't get that. Or, you know, we need a, a church for young people in this town. Okay, a bunch of young people without any old people is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> is it not? It, it's, that's the truth. We need that wisdom. We need some gray hairs among us because we get all excited and every now and then you need the grandfathers and the fathers in the church to step up and say, fellas, I love your enthusiasm. If I had a dollar for any time somebody opened a sentence like that to me, Tyler, I love your enthusiasm. There's a but coming. But why don't we do one of those things instead of all nine of those things, right? Because young folks can get up and start ripping up and down the old church the way we're doing it is the only way it must be done. It's not good. We don't have any opportunities to love each other. We're not having any opportunities to die to ourselves. We're not having any opportunities to teach each other to welcome one another. When we say, I'm just going to split up into a group that does not require any hospitality from me because they're just like me. Doesn't require any godly love from me because they're just like me. So I already love them because we're all just alike. All the doctrine of Romans, all the Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, is all building to this final ethical conclusion, which is to love and welcome each other. Because if Jesus did all that for you, don't you dare withhold it from somebody else. And I know that we've all been around Christians and in churches where that does not happen. Or instead, what we do is we stand up and we give a list of all the people we don't like that can never come here. 
Not all churches do that, but they're out there. And it's a real shame. Because then we'll, we'll get right back to amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We need some wretches in this church. Wretches that we can show God's amazing grace to. People who are broken down and beaten and, and know nothing about the Bible. Somebody who pronounces that big book in the middle of the book of Palms. And you get the wonderful opportunity to teach them that the P is silent. Oh, I didn't know that. That's discipleship, man. Starting at the bottom and working your way to the top. And then you get to explain the Trinity to them. And then you explain justification. And then you get to start talking about the rapture. And then you get to start breaking down how to study your Bible. And the next thing you know, they're over there saying, well, actually, the P is silent. And you're like, hey, look, it's, it's happening. It's going around. That's what the church is for, to love each other like Jesus loved us. And when people show up and they want to stick their nose in the air, then Jesus would turn around and say, you whitewashed tomb. You're not going to get this. You're an old wineskin. And the new wineskin, when the new wine is poured in, the new wine expands. So you've got to have new wineskins. If you're not flexible, if you're not supple in God's hands, you're going to miss the next thing that he does. You might not lose your salvation, but you'll have to watch God do what he's doing. And I refuse to sit back and watch, man. I want to be right in there. Don't you? Don't you want to have that be right there with what God is doing? If you do, just know that what that's going to mean is you actively having to show love to a lot of people that probably make you real uncomfortable. I hope we're all ready for that. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Again, we're back to referring to how the Old Testament leads into the New. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And Paul gives further examples of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And specifically, he's giving quotations from the Old Testament that talk about Jesus welcoming Gentiles. Remember, the main conflict of chapter 14 was over holy days and kosher food. It was Jew versus Gentile. In this context, the Jews were those with a weak conscience. They could not imagine how you can be accepted by God and yet eat bacon. Because it's unclean. It's unholy. And worship on a Sunday instead of the Sabbath day. They couldn't get over that. The strong were the Gentiles who know we're free indeed in Jesus Christ. We don't have to do those things. But Paul is telling guys, come together. Welcome each other. You who are weak, welcome those who are stronger than you in their faith. Because God has welcomed him. And those of you who are strong, don't demand that this person get it right before you welcome them. And the reason he gives is because, guys, what we're living out with Jews and Gentiles coming together is what God has been planning since the very beginning in his Old Testament. He says, Christ came to the circumcised, which of course means to the Jews, as Jesus would say in Matthew, the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, he told his disciples at first, don't go to the Gentiles, to the lost sheep of Israel. And then in Matthew 15, the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and wanted help. And he said, I've only been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. 
And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, the last week, remember those Greeks that wanted to talk to Jesus in the Gospel of John? And it says, Jesus said, now the Father's will is being fulfilled. He knew his mission was being accomplished when Gentiles wanted to learn from him. That's always been the goal. It's fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel was always the beginning, but it was only the beginning. Genesis 12, verse 3, God told Abraham, Those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the world shall be blessed. And that was Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, who has brought blessing to all the world. Any Gentiles in this room that are really glad that the Lord chose to include you in his plan? Well, I am. <laughs> I'm so, I can't get over it. The thought of like, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be bowing down to rocks. Or I'd be some insufferable atheist on the internet looking for somebody to get mad at. And he gives four quotations here. The first one in verse 9 is from Psalm 1849. Where David writes, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I'm going to worship you with people from other nations with me. In verse 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. This is the song of Moses. Right before he sends the people off into the promised land, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Moses is saying, this that God is about to do is going to result in the Gentiles worshiping together with God's chosen people. Verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 117, verse 1, where the psalmist is saying, all you Gentiles, praise the Lord, hallelujah, extol the Lord, all the peoples, not just the chosen people, all the people. And then the last one, verse 12, is Psalm, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 10. The root of Jesse will come. Jesse, of course, was the father of who? David. Right? So Jesse was the father of David, but he's talking about the son of David, who is also called the root of Jesse. This is sort of like one of those, the Lord said to my Lord kind of verses. The Messiah is going to be the son of David, but he's also going to be the root of the tree where Jesse came from. Well, yes, because Jesus was not just the son of man. He was also the son of God, right? From whom every family in all the earth is named. And he says, that one will come to rule the Gentiles. And you can hear all the people going, yes, dominate, rule those Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That, that Messiah is not just going to be hope for Israel, but hope for all those nations. Babylon and Assyria and Greece and Rome and Persia and England and America and China and India and Uganda and Brazil. And all the nations, all the Gentiles will hope in Christ, the root of Jesse, you can see there, Paul quotes from all three parts of the Old Testament as it was divided by the Jews. They call their Old Testament the Tanakh, which is actually an acronym that they add some vowels to. T stands for Torah, which is the law, the first five books. He quotes from Deuteronomy. The second one, Zotanakh, the N, stands for Nevi'im, which is Hebrew for prophets. He quotes from Isaiah, who is one of the prophets. And then the last one is Ketuvim, Tanakh. And Ketuvim stands for writings. It's all the other ones in the middle, the Psalms. He's saying the entirety of the Old Testament was not just pointing to Jesus, but it was pointing to Jesus as the uniter of Jew and Gentile in his church. So when Jews and Gentiles come together, 
in the root of Jesse, as we are here today, we are fulfilling the hope of the Old Testament and the promise that God made to Abraham. Somebody say, cool. That is really cool. Everything that God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all of the rest of them, this is it right here. We're living that out. So if that's true, we cannot jeopardize that unity for the sake of things that have nothing to do with the gospel. Do you see this? There is cosmic significance to you getting over it that somebody over there is wearing pants instead of a skirt. That somebody over there has longer hair than you think is right for a gentleman to have. That somebody over there went to see that movie that you wouldn't dare go. Those things have nothing to do with the gospel. And they're so small. When you going to get to heaven, Jesus, why didn't you fellowship with your sister? Well, Lord, I mean, did you see what kind of music she listened to? The Lord is going to look at you like this. Gospel, eternal heaven and hell brought together in the blood of Jesus, risen from the dead on the third day, the power of the Holy Ghost, and that? Broken because of that? I don't think so. Paul said in Ephesians 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We just described that eternal Old Testament into the new calling. Walk worthy of that. With all humility, meaning it's not all about you. With all gentleness, meaning even if you do need to correct something, you do it gently. With patience, meaning you're willing to put up with an awful lot for the sake of the unity of the body. Bearing with one another in love. There, in that context, bearing with means putting up with. There are some people in the church you're never going to be best friends with, but you still have to love them. And the peak of your love for them might just be putting up with the fact that you guys disagree with each other. Putting up with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you get excited about people of differing opinions coming together in Christ's church? Because Paul urges us to be eager for that. For all the world's talk about diversity, we all kind of laugh at that because it becomes very clear. It's you can be diverse in external things, but you better be absolutely the same in how you think and talk and believe. Am I right? You, you better be right in line with what we all think already. And then we'll get a lot of different people that look different and we'll call it diversity. Jesus goes beyond that. He says, not only am I going to bring in a bunch of people that look different from each other, I'm going to bring in people that have differences of opinions on stuff. Maybe even strong differences of opinions on stuff. I'm going to bring in people that don't think they should eat meat in God's church. And I'm going to bring in people that are professional barbecue experts. I'm going to bring them together in my church. And they're going to stand next to each other on a Sunday morning and raise their hands and praise me. I'm going to bring people together that they, they came out of the rock and roll lifestyle and they've still got the hair and they've still got the music and they pull out of the street and it's just like thumping in the back of the car. And somebody that grew up thinking if you listen to anything other than a piano, you're doing something wrong. And they show up to church in a suit and tie and they're going to stand right next to each other and they're going to hug each other and say, how you doing, brother? Praise Jesus. That's what God is doing in his church. Real differences are to be allowed 
I went through that big long list of stuff a few weeks ago of the kinds of things that it is okay to disagree about. And, and truly disagree, by the way. Not say, well, I'll let you disagree for now, but eventually we will have to talk about this. No, no, not here. But I disagree. Okay. Well, we all agree, and then there's this one person who disagrees. That's fine. What if they invite friends who also disagree? That is also fine. That's wonderful. If we want God to do something here, we should expect a motley crew coming through the doors. Are you ready for that? I hope you're ready for that. You know what one of the, the things I dream about and I pray about when I think about the Lord sending revival on our country? As I say, Lord, there are so many people that are caught up in the gay lifestyle, transgender, lesbian, whatever, whatever the issue is. Like, Lord, fill up this church with those people finding Christ Jesus. Okay, that's one thing. Now you, are, now you need to put yourself in the mindset of worshiping alongside a bunch of those people. Are you okay with that? Maybe some of them won't be quite as sanctified as you'd like them to be. Maybe some of them will be bringing friends that aren't quite saved yet. Are you ready for that? I'm ready for that. Because that group needs Jesus. And they're going to come in and they're, they're going to talk different and they're going to dress different. And for some of them, especially if they've transitioned, they're going to have scars and they're going to look different and they're going to sound different. Are we still going to put our arms around them and say, welcome to God's house? You better. You better. Because that is what Christ did for you. What do you think if God were to do a revival among a biker gang in this area? And they all started coming here. I'm not talking about, you know, guys that are like attorneys and then they go biking on the weekend. Like the real deal guys. Like th those guys all show up and they're, they're rough and they're loud and they're, they're kind of smell different than you'd like them to smell at church. And you're like, man, this is really not what I expected when I first came here. So? Who cares? That's nothing to do with the gospel. If they're coming in here and they're finding Christ Jesus, even if they're going to come for a long time before they find Christ Jesus, that's fine. It's good. Some are going to come saved. Some are going to come unsaved. Some are going to come forever. Some are just going to come for one day. We are to welcome each other in God's church. Right? You've got to save your strength for the things that really matter. When someone comes in and wants us to discard the writings of Paul in the New Testament, that's when we take a hard stand and say, absolutely not. That's when we say, no, it's probably best that you go. Somebody who comes in stirring up division and trying to cause trouble and, and making the home fellowships fight each other, that kind of person needs to go. But not over stuff that has nothing to do with Jesus. We'll welcome anyone here, regardless of, let's run through a few things, regardless of age. I love that we have such a, a spread of ages in this church. I love that we have young people and that we have old people. I love that we have old men and we have young men. We have old women and we have young women. We have people in the middle. We have people that are just starting to have kids. We have people that have grandkids and great-grandkids. We have people that are you know, the little babies over there being taught by, one week they're going to get taught by somebody who's in their early 20s. The next week they're going to be taught by somebody in their 60s or 70s in the middle. I love that. That's community. That's like the old village, right? It takes a village to raise a child. That's Jesus' thing. The world didn't make that up. This is not a young person's church. I am a young pastor, but this is not a young person's church. 
I hope the church fills up with a, with a revival of young people in this generation. But we might have a revival of the last of the baby boomers. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, if there was just a revival of all these people in their late 60s and 70s and into their 80s, and it just fills up with people finding Christ and being born again for the first time? Do you think that might need to be a little bit of adjustment for some of us and how we conduct ourselves? Okay, that's wonderful. Age is irrelevant in God's church. Number two, and this one should be obvious, but ethnicity. What would happen if a bunch of people from a different country all started coming here? And like English is being spoken just as much as, I don't know, Greek or something like that. Or Spanish or Korean or anything like that. Wouldn't that be wonderful to hear that? When you've got a bunch of people and we've got to figure out, okay, one of these rooms we've got to use to have translations for all the grandmas and grandpas that don't speak English so good. Wouldn't that be remarkable? And then what happens if they, they start to overtake those of us who are native English speakers? Awesome. That's so great. This is a mostly white church. Okay? What happens if the day comes where it becomes a mostly black church? Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. We have, we have no desire to keep things the way they are. I'm not going to go out and try to make things happen unless I feel like we're keeping people out. I pray that the Lord enables this church to be representative of the communities that are around here. And if you feel like you're going to have a problem with that, you need to get home on your knees and pray. Because God has welcomed all of us. Wealth doesn't matter. We got rich folks and poor folks in this church. We need that. Because those who are rich need to be reminded that money has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. And those who are weak need those who are better off than they are because they can help them out in their shortcomings. We need that. I don't ever want us to be like a tax bracket church. Like you know, lower middle class goes to Calvary Chapel and upper middle class goes here. And if you're below that, oh goodness, may the Lord deliver us from that. And may, may we do our best not to give off a vibe that certain people are not allowed here. But secondary doctrines. Do we have positions as a church on secondary doctrines? We sure do. We believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. right? We have a stance on uh, the election and predestination of, of believers. We have a stance on lots of things. But if somebody comes in here and has a difference of opinion, can they attend here? Yes, of course they can. That, that doesn't mean that I'm going to teach it any differently. But I'm not going to kick you out. What about church style? Does church style have anything to do with the gospel? It does not. If you think it does, think again. Because in Jesus' day, they did not have organs or electric guitars. So it clearly has nothing to do with it, does it? Right now, you know, we, had a, we have a cajon on stage. We have an acoustic guitar. We have a bass. We were trying out a drum kit yesterday. So that's coming soon. And if you think, well, I don't know if I can worship in a church with a drum kit. Brother and sister, check your heart. Because it's still worshiping Jesus, isn't it? And for those of you that get real excited about the lights and the, and the drums and the videos, what happens if we show up and say, you know, every once in a while we're going to start having a choir and an organ? I'll just find another church on those weeks. No, come on. No, church style or personal style. Church style or personal style, meaning hairstyle, piercings, tattoos, how formal you're going to dress on Sunday. Those things really have nothing to do. I don't care if, if a bunch of goths walk in here. We're not going to try to bring them along until they can leave that aside. No, that has nothing to do with Jesus. Who cares? 
well, somebody comes in here and, and what if they smell funny? Well, who cares? I'm saying who cares a lot because the only thing we care about is the gospel of Jesus. Somebody's media convictions. A bunch of people come in who love movies and they love going to concerts and they love reading the, the latest book and watching the latest show. And you say, well, me and my family, we've decided not to engage in some of that stuff. You don't have to, but they don't have to stop. They don't have to stop because that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. I don't think I could watch that movie without sinning. Okay, then your conscience is weak. Maybe theirs is stronger than yours. But I've been a Christian longer. It doesn't really have anything to do with it. What matters is how have you understood the liberty in Christ? Substance convictions. Paul's already talked about this one, right? Eating and drinking. I could throw smoking in there. Well, what if I came to church and somebody was smoking outside the door? And? I'm serious about this one. There is not a word in the Bible about that. Well, it'll make us smell funny at church. Really? You've got to set that aside, brothers and sisters. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what matters. I've known people that say, well, I would love to come to church, but I need to take a smoke break every you know, 20, 30 minutes. And the last place I went, you know, somebody hollered at me for smoking outside the church, so I just didn't come back. I don't want to be that, that pastor on Judgment Day, let me tell you. Because I sent somebody to your church, and they didn't come back because why exactly? Well, they were inhaling tobacco smoke. What does my word have to say about that? Well, nothing, Lord, but I don't like it. I don't care what you like. What I care is, did I die for them? Did my blood cover them? Then you can welcome them. There are people in this church who abstain from alcohol. There are people in this church that do not abstain from alcohol. It is not up to you to go and figure out who they are. It's just up to you to get along with each other. There are people in this church that have difference of opinion about the kinds of foods you can eat. It's fine. Because the gospel is most important. Okay, well, we can't come together to go to the prison and talk about Jesus Christ to a bunch of people that are there life without parole because we disagree about wine. May the Lord forgive us for that. We're going to need it. Substance convictions. Political persuasion. What if somebody voted different than you? Well, now you're starting to get into some stuff that's serious, Tyler. I know. That's why we're going there. Political persuasion. What if somebody comes in here and they're a communist? A Christian communist. No such thing. Oh, really? You come to Nepal with me. I'll introduce you to a few. Well, I, I, don't, I don't like that. All right. What if somebody comes in here and they say, you know what? I, I, I stand with Jesus and all the moral things, but I really, I really feel like we ought to vote for this party as opposed to that party. You go, well, I don't know if this is the church for you then. <laughs> I used to say, he's not president anymore, so I can say it without worrying so much now, but it's like some Christians, like their opinion about Donald Trump defined their Christianity way more than it should have, which is not at all, right? Or pick your guy, pick your gal. What difference does it make? Political persuasion. We all have differences of opinions on stuff. Let them lie. And if you can't discuss them without getting angry, don't discuss them. Number 10, Christian maturity. Some people will walk in here and they will be as good as gold and we love them. Some people will walk in and they're going to lose their temper every once in a while. All right. Elijah lost his temper a couple times. David lost his temper and cut people's hands off sometimes. 
Paul lost his temper a few times. It's all right. Now, be angry and do not sin, but not just, oh, if I, I feel like if I lose my temper in front of these people, they'll never want to see me again. That's not true here, brothers and sisters. Christian maturity. They don't read their Bible enough. Okay, they should probably read it more, but that doesn't mean they're not welcome here. Here's how you answer this question. Who would you have a hard time hugging if they walked through the door? That's who you need to pray for. Would you have a trouble hugging somebody who walked through the door that very obviously was gay? Would you have a hard time hugging somebody who walked through the door if they've got piercings in their face and colored hair and spiky boots? Why? You have a hard time hugging somebody that walks in real buttoned up in a suit and tie, real angry look on their face? Why? Jesus did. You have a hard time hugging somebody that walked in and they've got some kind of illness, some kind of sickness around them? For some of y'all, somebody walked in here with a mask, would you still go up and give them a hug? They might not want to, but you get the point. Titus 3 verse 9 says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The glory of your salvation is too great to confuse and conflate with your matters of preference. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The power of the Holy Spirit is working to bring unity and love between the members of the body of Christ. That's our hope. If you are more concerned and have stronger opinions about matters that are not gospel than the gospel, you won't have joy or peace. Because you're going to be constantly hunting down people to find out if they agree with you on stuff. But if you can let the magnificent truth of the gospel, of the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And you will have the ability to welcome people that nobody else wants to welcome. May this church become a beacon of welcome to everyone in our community. I hope we can set an example for our brothers and sisters, our other churches. And I don't even want us to be in the business of tearing down barriers. Let's just never build them up in the first place. Let's be a true community. What does that mean? A group of people that have something in common. And what do we have in common? Jesus. He is great enough to hold us together and stronger than anything that could try to pull us apart. So welcome one another. And if you are here afraid that if people find certain things out about you, that you're not going to be welcome, let me tell you, you are welcome here.